0: You have tried to trap me, but I will not fall in your hole.
1: (laughs) Our topic for the podcast this morning is honesty, which came out of the Patreon gathering and which I'm very excited about because Anne and I talked a lot about honesty in the initial years of our friendship. That we did. A lot. (laughs) I remember when I was first getting to know Anne and she was talking on the phone to someone trying to describe who she was going to be, like they were meeting in a coffee shop or something. We hadn't met in person. So Anne says into the phone, I'll be the one in the red coat who's really fat. And my eyes got all wide. Like you can't partly because (laughs) I felt that calling oneself fat was an insult because I was what, twenty years old? (laughs) (laughs) Still working that that out recently out of high school. Uh and partly because i had learned that you're not supposed to when someone is fat you just don't mention it and then maybe they won't know that they're fat i don't know (laughs) it'd be a
0: surprise if they (laughs) ever
1: figure it out i was like ann it is the arbitrary rules of society that you're not supposed to reference being fat and ann was like well it's a really easy way to describe what i look like and also if you don't tell me still i know (laughs) right and and can i just say Who made you the Arbitrary Rules of Society, Keeper? (laughs) I I was, no, I, I didn't want those Arbitrary Rules of Society. They were foisted on me because of mistakes I made when I was a child, but I'll tell that story later because it's not all about me right now. Right. I didn't, I didn't make these rules. I've been told that I have to follow the Arbitrary Social Conventions, and one of them is you don't describe people by their body size. You know, that's
0: really valuable. I think we shouldn't, I feel patronized, just randomly (laughs) describe people by their body size. But that's because we layer all this judgment onto it, right? Mm -hmm. Like fat is bad or fat is okay or whatever it is. So in that moment, I was just trying to describe the things they would see. Large body, (laughs) red coat, right? And the word fat wasn't a live word for me. Now, I don't go around... Saying, hey, the fat lady over there, I I don't right. describe other people that way. I wait until they tell me in their speech how that's how they would describe themselves. Because if you describe someone else as fat, you may be unintentionally calling them ugly in their eyes. Right. They may have an assumption that fat is a bad word and then I have used a bad word at them. Right. So I you know it's like it's like people's pronouns you want to call people the things they want to be called you want to appreciate Mm -hmm. them for who they are and how they see themselves so i don't have any judgment around that word so i just used it as a descriptor it was just (laughs) honest and then we got into this
1: whole thing because i had just been taught all of the social conventions and then Anne was like oh no i believe in radical honesty which is just you tell the full unvarnished truth all of the time, which I had recently learned in elementary and high school was the exact opposite of what humans were supposed to do. Can be very (laughs) unfortunate
0: consequences.
1: (laughs) So you can explain to the people how radical honesty works, and then I will rebut.
0: (laughs) Sure, sure. So nearly 30 years ago, somebody put this book in my hands called Radical Honesty by Brad Blanton, and he's pretty adamant about the radical honesty. So he is (laughs) all the truth all the time, uncensored, unfiltered. Mm -hmm. You can see how that might have some consequences. (laughs) Now, his theory was that we are better off if we tell all the truth all the time and we keep it straightforward. And sure, that might hurt some people's feelings. But if they stay in the room and stay at the table and stay in the conversation, you'll work it out, maybe. And if they don't, then at least you have been honest, you are not burdened by deceit, and you can carry on your life without them. <laughs> I suspect he carries on his life without a lot of people. <laughs> but there was some real wisdom in that book about, um, I think for me it was about being honest with yourself, being willing to admit how you think, how you feel, what's happening, how you know what's going on in the circumstances around you. And so it was life-changing for me because I had to I mean, my tendency is to be a people pleaser. I want Mm -hmm. everybody to like me. And so it's easy to bend yourself a little to try to get other people to like you or to be the way they want you to be. Is
1: this man who wrote this book perchance a straight white man? I believe that (laughs) is true. (laughs) Because I wonder if that has an influence on the, oh yeah, people just shouldn't people please, they should just be honest, whatever, blah, 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 right? Being a foster kid is a fairly powerless position, no matter what your other demographics are. Mm -hmm. Being a surgeon's wife carries a lot of power. And one of the things that I noticed was I thought of honesty as an attribute of me, a choice I was making, but Mm -hmm. it was very related to how much power I had in the world.
0: Right. That's fair. I think absolutely it is easier to wield your honesty when you have more power in the world (laughs) without any thought to consequences sometimes. (laughs) That is an unfortunate thing. So the next thing that happened for me was another book came out in the series and it was Mm -hmm. called Honest to God. And this was a conversation back and forth between Brad Blanton and Neil Donald Walsh. Now, Neil Donald Walsh is the guy who wrote the Conversations with God books.
1: Also straight white cis
0: man? Which, just wondering. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And if I'm going to be completely honest, they are not my favorite, right? He (laughs) he is a nice man. He writes lovely books, but he uses really a lot of words and it goes very slow. Um, More Ah. like speedy excited yeah moving on i'm i'm twitching my hands in here so like i like come on come on move on move on so i had tried because I thought it was virtuous many times to read conversations with god and not like unitarians in canada <laughs> you know, lots and lots of words never got past the first chapter but then they came out with this book that was a conversation between the two of them so both of them believe in complete and full honesty all the time but they have very different styles. So Blanton, all the truth, all the time, unfiltered, on the table, smack. And Neil Donald Walsh would say, I believe that it's important to be honest all the time with the people you love and to all the people around you. But it should be tempered with kindness, because if it is not tempered with kindness, it is just cruel. When there's more than one honesty, and you can pick the kindest one. What does that mean, more than one honesty? Well,
1: there's a lot of different ways to say a thing that are true, right? So if I'm going to make a statement about what is your house like... Mm -hmm. There are a number of things I could say about your house sitting in your living room, all of which would be true, and I can pick which one and how to say it, and what's even my business, right? Like, it sounds like the first guy just feels that you should unrestrainedly unleash the narrative that is in your mind
0: at all times. I think that is true. (laughs) That's unkind. Which things are your place to say? Right. And he thinks, all if you're thinking it, it's your place to say it. And I think that is death to relationships. Yeah, I also think
1: that he is unfairly placing too much responsibility on the speaker. When we talk about coming out of the closet, this is a very live Mm -hmm. thing for polyamorous people, right? Because there's a lot of bad things that can happen to you if you come out of the closet as a polyamorous person. But there's also a lot of good for the movement until people start coming out of the closet, just like with queer people. Mm -hmm. Um, People's image of Who you are as a group can't be full because it's only the few people who were outed by force, which is not a representative sample. So, important to come out of the closet for reasons that everybody understands. But we talk about that as though it's an individual act of courage or honesty when it's a two way street. If my, say, mom, my mom is very encouraging of honesty, but <laughs> if one's mother is constantly making statements about, I sure hope you're not a lesbian or whatever it right. is, Right. they have created a hostile environment. They have participated. They have said, I don't want you to be honest and made it much harder. So I, I don't think that it's fair to put the responsibility for honesty entirely on the speaker. It's our job also to make the
0: door of the closet easy to open right if we right. want people to be honest <laughs> right so i think what you're saying is it's really valuable for people to be honest to be uh, an example of what might be a marginalized community so other people can see themselves reflected in the world and at the same time they don't owe us that honesty. Yeah, but I'm also trying to say honesty is a two-way
1: street, Mm -hmm. right? If you want your child to tell you the truth about X, Y, or Z, you have to make it clear to your child that you don't punish them for telling the truth.
0: You know, I'm not entirely certain honesty is a two-way street. I think honesty is a decision (laughs) in the brain right behind the mouth of the person who is speaking. I think relationships are a two-way street. If you want to be in relationship with me, your dishonesty could end that. But you can be honest with me, and that's not necessarily reciprocal. It's not necessarily going to go well, right? You can choose to be one-sided honest. That doesn't Your honesty doesn't make me required to be honest back.
1: Right, but if you have power over me in, in the in this one, you can't control anything I do no matter how much <laughs> I control you try. nothing. But if we are in a relationship with a discrepancy of power, if you have made it clear that
0: these are the spectrum, like I can be honest, but it's a lot harder. It is a lot harder, but it's not impossible. I mean, I, I really want to push back against this idea that only the powerful can be honest, that they have, sure, it's a lot simpler if... You have all the money in the world and all the resources and if they don't like you, you can just keep carrying on. But some of our most marginalized, least wealthy people are some of the most honest people going. And so Mm. the price may be higher, but it's not, I don't know that it's any easier or harder. I think in the times when I have had less in terms of resources, being honest felt even more important to me. It was like it was, that was what I had that's what I had really yeah I think we have different formative
1: experiences because my formative experience (laughs) was trying to find places to live as a teenager and the only currency I had was the narrative that I offered
0: well and I you know to to be fair in this story when I was a kid 100% honesty was not my story because I had a place to live. I had people who loved and cared about me, but I knew there were limits to how far that would go. And so I lived inside of the, I will not show you things that will make you mad at me. I will not say things that will make you unhappy, at least not, you know, more than a reasonable amount. (laughs) I mean, we all, we all harm our mothers, don't we?
1: It's interesting. I think we have a reversal because in my family of origin, the reason I ended up having to leave was because I said things that were part of the family culture that you were not supposed to say. Right. I think that's how I see it. I think they would see it differently. So when I was a kid, yeah, I did do that. But I think I learned from that real quick. <laughs> right.
0: And, <laughs> so I you the door.
1: <laughs> and I am just now figuring out how to be honest. For me, the hardest part is to be honest with myself Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: uh, the the self-honesty part is very hard once i understand a thing finding Mm -hmm. the courage to say it isn't as hard but i live a life of a lot of privilege
0: there's not a lot for me to be afraid of right right when i when i read the first book the radical honesty book it was transformative for me because it pushed me to know myself better in the ways that i had kind of stuffed my feelings down Mm -hmm. And so like I would before I read that book, I would never have described myself as fat because I thought of it as an insult, right? Because I thought there was something wrong with me and that I was a failure if this was my descriptor, right? I don't think that book is what fixed
1: that. I think when you were initially saying fat, you were like, even if something is a flaw, we should be honest about it. It was quite a bit later before I saw you starting to push back against the idea that fat was bad.
0: Yeah, I, I, that's fair. At that point, I probably still thought it was a flaw, but it wasn't a live, painful honest. descriptor. It wasn't, well, it wasn't hurting me to say that. I had come to accept that this was me. I still wasn't satisfied that this me was good enough or okay. I would have described you as
1: sad about being fat, but referring to the fat was no increased sadness.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, That's fair. So the first book, it cracked open my brain into the if i can't be honest with myself and know what i'm actually feeling and thinking and my grandma in my in my autograph book when i was like 11 had written always be true to yourself (laughs) and uh, that's shakespeare by the way um i didn't know that (laughs) and i always thought meh whatever that, couldn't you have written something nice like what what how is this but that's come to be like a real guiding light for me throughout my life if I'm not true to myself I have nothing in the end in the back why room? are you laughing
1: because I was thinking geez it would be nice if someone write that instead of you need to do a better job of adhering to social norms and I was thinking <laughs> of I have a book where that Jamie when I was so Jamie was my first Stable foster home well my last foster home because it was so stable um so my foster yeah. sister who is a year or two older than me <laughs> yeah there's a book somewhere where jamie has been like no no you, you can't do this and she would get annoyed because she's like these things are obvious why are you being mean these things are obvious and so there's this sheet in the back of a book somewhere where every time there was an on- one that was obvious, mm-hmm. I would say, you have to phrase that as a rule. And so there's this list <laughs> of rules about things that you're not allowed to be honest about. One of them was, um, was harassment and assault. Right? right. It was like, even right. if it's referred to in this way, we have to pretend it didn't happen. Like there were it was pretty mm. nuanced and mm. creepy in some mm-hmm. ways. But there were, and there was like, even if you don't like the food, you have to say you like the food. Oh. <laughs> all of this this of is things.
0: this is the survival algorithm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Nobody wrote
0: you should be more of who you are in any of my books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my grandma went and died before I had to figure out how to do that. <laughs> So that wasn't (laughs) helpful either.
1: (laughs) Grandma was real honest.
0: (laughs) So. I believe that it's really important for each of us to understand you've talked about this before what it is to live a good life or to be a good person like to Mm -hmm. understand for ourselves every one of us has a different idea of that it might be the things that you do or the ways that you feel or the experiences that you have but whatever it is it matters to you and to me that all boils down to the virtues that you want to inhabit and Mm -hmm. exhibit in the world and so If I'm not honest with myself, I can't do that. And so I read this book and it rattled my cage so much because I thought, I I don't know the answers to all his questions. I can't actually (laughs) tell you how I feel about this thing. This thing. I don't even remember what the book says. I just remember being completely rattled. A whole group of us were reading it. Um, I was married to the husband at the time and... (laughs) Well, he kind of embodies the radical honesty theory, much to my chagrin at times. <laughs> so it was a rough patch in my life after I got this book. Now, I know I know some folks who follow this practice, follow this guy, meet in community, really love it. and It's been really meaningful in their life. I don't mean to trash it completely. I think we each take our own stuff from things. For me, it was sharp and hard. So I needed to do the dissecting of my soul to figure out what mattered to me and who I was. But I didn't really need to be making announcements about other people's souls. That just didn't seem right to me in that way. (laughs) Right. I probably got a little braver. I would say to someone, Mm -hmm. it looks like you're having a hard time with that. Or, (laughs) I see, you know, it's kind of more like the the nonviolent language that People try to learn, you know, instead of attributing characteristics to people or feelings or thoughts, we just describe what we notice. You seem to be frustrated. I'm wondering if there's anything I can help you with. (laughs) Right. And then they can tell you if you're right or wrong.
1: I wonder if part of the power of the book for you was, so I got to know you just shortly after your marriage had ended and I have spent some time with the husband and he is radically honest in a. Very strong and charismatic way, mm-hmm. so that people tend to revolve a bit around
0: his reality. He can be very charming,
1: yes, and authentic. He's he's authentic he's, in his representation. He's
0: hundred percent authentic.
1: And so I think that when I observe the family system of the three of you, who only had just recently stopped being a, a family unit, right? The three parents his version of things dominated the narrative and so when you read that book it there was an act of wait a second radical honesty can be for me too right
0: right which and was interesting to watch yes that's a really good way to put it i hadn't actually thought about it that way he definitely was a dominant charismatic being right people are drawn to him and then there is usually a moment when they're like hmm too much of that kind of honesty not my favorite thing (laughs) and so you know for many years we stayed at the table and worked stuff out and then I read the second book (laughs) and Neil Donald Walsh he talks about look I'm not saying when somebody says does this dress look good on me or does this dress make me look fat right that's the trick question (laughs) No, the fat makes you look fat. The dress
1: does. Disguise it. These are the sorts of things that are in the back of the book that you're not supposed to say. Right.
0: Blanton would say, yep. (laughs) Or "Nope." you're you're fat, but the dress doesn't make it any worse. (laughs) And Neil Donald Walsh, I'm guessing, would say something like, that's a lovely dress and you look lovely. He might avoid answering the question That's without... the kind of
1: honesty that I do. <laughs> ...without lying
0: to you, right? He didn't lie. He wouldn't say it was a lovely dress if it wasn't or that you looked nice if you didn't. But he's not saying, yep, fat or not fat because that wasn't really... Ho- it was a trick question. For a long time, I confused
1: not telling a lie with being honest. So mm-hmm. very early mm-hmm. on in life, well, early on in my adult life, I decided I wasn't going to tell lies. Right. And I became very good at being very dishonest with telling lies as needed. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, picking which narrative you're going to center. Right. So when someone asks you, you see politicians do this all the time. Someone asks them a question and they just answer the question that they wanted the person to have asked. Right. Right. <laughs> People do it in response time as well. You're familiar with this in church. <laughs> yeah. So it has to do with who you center. Mm-hmm. And I am just cluing into the relationship between honesty and power. I see honesty when you are powerless as an unreasonable obligation to put on people who just need to struggle to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And I think if I hear you right, you see honesty as a right that even powerless people should have to exercise.
0: Absolutely. Oh, I also recognize it can have pretty mean mean consequences.
1: I-, I think it's both of those things. It just didn't occur to me until now that honesty could be a form of self-care. Right To say, screw you, I don't care the consequences. I'm going to tell the truth as I see
0: it. I get to participate in this narrative as well. Yeah, and if you think if there's something about your identity that causes people to try to squash you like a bug, like trying to hide that when that is important to you to stay alive, it, it never works. Those characteristics, they out one way or another. Yep. And so being solid in who you are And being honest with yourself I think is the first thing and then you decide how much trust you have with the person you're talking to (laughs) Because, because we're talking about honesty and power but we also need to talk about honesty and trust. So if I trust the person on the other side of the hard conversation or the difficult mean sounding statement I'm more inclined to stay at the table and sort it out but I'm also likely to say you know when you said it that way that really hurt my feelings. It's interesting when you talk about staying at the table, because in my world,
1: the right to leave the table is the essential component of Mm
0: self-care,
1: right? That was a hard lesson for me. Yeah, you were always, no matter what, we stay in the room until we work it out, Mm -hmm. and... A crucial life lesson for me has been if a person is not working it out in good faith, you have every right to leave the table and you should. And you should go find a different table
0: that is a better table with nicer people. Right? Because this is a waste of your life. And I resolve my stuff out loud, I know... <laughs> Do you? I know. Yes, I know. This is a shocker for all of you listening. I know that when... I say something and then we're in a conversation and other people have ideas and then my ideas grow and stretch and or they get refined or I understand more and it's a process of figuring this out out loud. I had no idea that people did that on the inside. Did you know people do that on the inside? I don't even know if they do that on the inside.
1: I don't even know if any of that occurs. As I've been watching John, right? Because he's the opposite of what we are. And I don't think it's that he's doing that whole narrative on the inside. Because I've asked him, like, what are your thoughts? Can you put them Mm -hmm. into words? After like this big long walk in which I talk about my feelings and my blah, 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 (laughs) blah, blah. He's like, I was thinking, I wonder if that's anodized metal in the fence beside the (laughs) generator. That is not the actual example. He'd be like, what the hell? That's a dumb question. But you can tell how carefully I was listening to his actual (laughs) words. Uh Uh-oh. Right. But I I think that I, I'm so curious about what people's internal monologues are. I used to think that those were people who had like a whole bunch of suppressed issues, but I don't think so. (laughs) I think they're just that part of them is simpler and then other parts of them are more complex that are simpler in me.
0: Right. And simpler in the sense of straightforward, right? Like they just they just have an experience and carry on. Whereas all my thoughts about metal are straightforward. (laughs) Exactly. I do not ponder the metal
1: at all. Most of the time that I have come to like one of those external lifeline truths. So for me, dishonesty will look like what is the true thing for me and what is supposed to be the true thing for me are different. And so I am just layering the appropriate thought on top. So like when I was trying to believe in God when I was 12 as a Christian, Mm -hmm. when I would think, well, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The blah, blah. I would just layer. I would stop thinking that thought and I would layer a new thought on top of it and think that other thought instead this is my main technique for getting through life very foreign to me it is well it's like the bedrock technique of how i survived for a really long time i hear you and the moment when you finally can get out of that it, you have to have a realization about a thing that you thought that was true that is not at all true mm-hmm. and every time i have only learned the true fact as it was coming out of my mouth say ah. so when i said to karen every lie i told this month was in service of becoming a minister
0: i didn't know that was a thing until i said it right <laughs> Right. And since you haven't told that story in this thing, do you want to just explain what you meant by that in case somebody's listening here first?
1: (laughs) Right. Sorry. So when I was in seminary realizing that I wanted to train to be a different thing and I wasn't well suited towards ministry, we had a theme month where we were supposed to pay attention to when we were the most honest Mm -hmm. and the least honest. And when I tracked it for a whole month, I found that and there was no lies. Lie was a wrong way to put it. But when I was acting inauthentically or playing a role that was not me every time i was leaving out of
0: the truth (laughs) yeah every (laughs) time
1: i was doing that i was trying to embody what i thought a minister should look like right i think there is a certain kind of dishonesty that is important in a ministerial presence because it's how you make it not about you so if you show up at the hospital bedside and my son has been in a car accident And I say, oh, hey, Anne, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm terrible, actually. I blah, 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 blah. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, fine. (laughs) So that's an example of a dishonesty that I think that's what you're supposed to do. And I think ministry has a number of places where where that's supposed to happen. So I think of that as a ministerial opacity, not dishonesty, exactly.
0: When I think about serving in a professional ministry capacity, I think that there is a there's a hierarchy of honesties. So like you said, when you're going to provide care to someone in a crisis, your feelings are lower on the hierarchy.
1: So wait a sec, whoa, 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 when you say, and how do you feel about that, which you're supposed to say as a minister, mm-hmm. are you, do you always want to know or are you sometimes lying that you don't want to know how they feel about it? You just know you're supposed to say that. I always care. Oh, see, that's why you're a better minister than
0: no, would it's- have ever been. I do not always care. Just why I was drawn to this and stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I want to just, just tease apart that there are a thousand different ways to do ministry and what you do is a ministry. So enough of that already. It's just that traditional model of you will provide the pastoral care, you will be the unfailing support to a community, you will read 4,000 books to get past the ministerial fellowship committee, all of those things, they didn't jive well for you. When you were honest with yourself about that, when you said, wait, this is not a Liz-shaped process, That may or may not be a judgment on the process, but the important thing was it it was you recognizing this is a process that's not Liz-shaped and you could choose to fight to change it or you could choose to fight to mangle yourself into the shape of process that it is or you could take a third path, which you did, to say, I'm going to create a Liz-shaped experience.
1: When I was trying to decide whether or not to have a divorce Mm -hmm. or whether or not to propose a divorce, The therapist I was seeing said, well, first you have to decide if you would want the marriage. And I said, what do you mean? She said, if we fixed these things, would you want to be in the marriage? And I think it was the Mm -hmm. same thing
0: Mm -hmm. with
1: ministry. I thought I could fight this way and that way and the other way. And then I thought, if I fix those things... Is ministry the right thing, even if I were able to get through? And I right. I don't think it is. I think I'm too self-centered. Like your thing about I really do want to know how people want to feel. I sometimes want to know. Sometimes I just want them to stop talking so I can right. tell my funny story. That's too self-centered for ministry. That's a stand-up right. comedian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is
1: another kind of ministry in the world. <laughs> Honesty about your flaws, I think, is one of the most, most empowering things mm-hmm. for me owning some of those things has been really helpful and when you're socialized as a woman you are supposed to want to listen to the person who tells the story like especially in romantic contexts where you meet a new guy with the exception of john which is why i adore him that is a crap (laughs) algorithm well but but if you want to make a good impression on a guy you smile and you nod and you go that is hilarious i am so riveted by what you have to say about i do not want that guy Right. That's why I am with John.
0: <laughs> fawn over his awesomeness and have no like life of my own.
1: <laughs> that's I remember Matt telling me once that in grade seven, the person who was teaching them like dating skills in lifestyles class said, and the other thing is when you're trying to impress a girl, you shouldn't just list all the things about you that are great. You should ask her questions about her and take mm-hmm. an interest in her. And Matt says, And then I remember thinking, but if I don't list all the things, how will she know? (laughs) And that's when I realized how differently we were socialized, right? Right. He was taught that people will like him because of the awesome things he is that he explains he is. And I was taught people will like you if you take active interest and make them feel good about themselves. Right. Unfortunately, my personality is much more inherently male. And I want to tell all the stories, which isn't to say that I'm not often very interested in what people have to say. I'm just not interested in it as often as I am
0: supposed to be for a female. (laughs) That may have been traditionally valuable in some of the, you know, when women were currency. That may have been helpful then. But in this world right now, which is on fire at the moment, I think we have to step outside of these categories of things. So. That's when I was trying to say that relationship is the two-way street. And so you're talking about the one-way street where I will (laughs) fawn over your awesomeness and then you will love me. And then maybe I'll get to work in a good thing or two about me. (laughs) And I always care. Like that is built into me. That's hardwired into me. I always care. But it is not my nature to only care about you and not about me. And it's not healthy. And we train up our humans to do that. And it's a horrible, ridiculous thing. So for me, the really big thing about the honesty is you have to be in relationships that have a compatible understanding of how to be honest together. So Mm. I can be around someone like Blanton, although I've never met him in person, so maybe I'm wrong. But (laughs) I could be around someone who is all the honesty all the time, unfiltered. I did it for many years. I experience it in my work life all the time there are people like that I can be around them I cannot live there right I do not want to live there living there would harm me because I would have to squash my soul like a bug yep and so I relate to the Neil Donald Walsh version where we temper our honesty with kindness so it is my job not to lie to you not to be dishonest to you but it is also my job not to be brutal Yes. So the brutal honesty? Really mean, awful, stinky stuff. I don't want it.
1: Also, you have to know when it's your place to be honest, because there are plenty of necessary lies that hold civilization together. And if you dismantle too many of them at once, you destabilize things. And that's, I think, true of civilization on a grand scale and a tiny scale, right? So if we said we will get rid of all of these lies everything would become discombobulated and I think stability is really valuable mm-hmm. and so I think it's important not to thrust honesty on people when they don't have the ability to manage what they would
0: need to dismantle if they were to face up to that honesty yeah when you're talking about civility I hear that as the shape of your honesty mm-hmm. we have to have ways that we can get along ways that we don't take each other apart hmm but I still don't think those things leave room for dishonesty oh yeah you can pick which honesty to say which is something that i've I've learned but picking which honesty
1: to say can be being authentic and just knowing your place or Mm -hmm. it can be being oppressed but in a very wily way so you're never technically (laughs) lying
0: (laughs) i've done both (laughs) well one one example of how you pick your honesty would be like if someone is expecting a baby and there's children around and they ask or they're telling them about the baby and they're like where's the baby and where does it come from and how does it get here the story you would tell a two-year-old and the story you would tell a four-year-old are very different right (laughs) the two-year-old you might use the right body parts but it's a simpler smaller story the 14-year-old you want to tell them about the blood and the guts and the pain it is a very effective birth control method
1: (laughs) it is in my little sheet in the back of the
0: book not to refer to genitals gratuitously (laughs) Right. That's an important social norm. Honesty comes up a lot when you're preparing memorial services as well. I'm thinking about times when I've led a service for somebody that was complicated, either because the cause of death was not an expected cause of death. And sometimes, well, you think back to the um, height of the AIDS epidemic when people... Families would want to hide that that was the cause of death for their loved one. Mm-hmm. And they would tell the minister doing the service that you can't say that. You just can't say yeah. that. And that means that everybody in that room who knows that to be the truth feels like we're in a lie in this service. Right. If, yeah. Especially if you create an alternative reality. Right. If you have a different cause of death. There are times when you have to say something without completely saying something. I think it's
1: nobody's business what a cause of death is. I've been in situations where the family didn't want it discussed. And I think people need to have a certain amount of right to privacy when they're grieving.
0: So if they ask you to do the service and instead of say, for instance, they died in a in a car crash, we'll pick yeah. something not too otherwise creepy. They died in a car crash and they want you to say instead they died in their sleep. Would you do it? I would say nothing about how they died.
1: I, I'm not saying if they're saying don't say he died of AIDS because you don't want anyone to tell them that they're gay. I don't agree with that because they're mm-hmm. going to have a bunch of gay friends who are grieving and they can't right. grieve unless you tell the true story of their life. Right. But I've been in a couple situations where the detail of a death opened up a can of worms
0: that the family wasn't ready to deal with. and I think that's okay. You weren't prepared to lie, you were prepared to leave it out.
1: Because I, I think that it is okay when something is nobody's business mm-hmm. to tell a white lie to shield it.
0: And back to this original idea that we had about are you obligated to come out? Like are you obligated if you are queer to come out as queer or polyamorous? Or can yeah. is it okay to hide that piece of your truth from the world? And I think it is. If a person lived that piece of truth in the world, like maybe they were an AIDS activist. Oh, if they they wanted it said, then yeah, you can't shove someone back in the closet just because they're dead. (laughs) So the tricky part is families try to do that all the time. Well, that's not okay. They want to bury that thing. And so there's this really wobbly trail you follow, right? Okay, I'm not going to say he died in his sleep because that to me feels like a lie in the circumstance. But... If the person who is commissioning the service has asked you not to say something, you have to figure out, is there something you can say that says enough, that speaks to the people in the room who know the truth without harming the family? And if there isn't, maybe you're not the right person to do that service. Well, that's the walk away from the table thing. If you can't find a thing that you can live with, maybe you're not the right person to be doing it. Okay,
1: I have another one for you. Tell me. This is a story, I don't know, I believe it is a True story, but I don't know anything of the origin of it. Okay. A minister, Unitarian minister, long time ago, I think you might actually know this story and the details better than me. Had a woman with a small baby mm-hmm. come; who they hadn't met before, and said, "I'd like you to baptize my baby, mm-hmm. so it will go to heaven." And the minister said, "Well, you know, it's kind of complicated, blah blah, many paths, yada yada." What ministers say. She started to cry, and she said, I'm an unwed mother, and my child will go to hell, and they won't baptize it because I am an unwed mother, and why Mm -hmm. should my child go to hell because of that? And
0: the minister said, all right, bring it over here. I will baptize your baby right now. Would you have done that? Uh, So first you're asking me, does my theology include baptism? Right. Well, I'm assuming... That your theology does not include that
1: that infant would be tortured forever in eternity due to the choices of its mother which presumably you also don't
0: even disagree with that true. is i'm true. just taking all that for granted that is true but it, it doesn't mean that i don't believe in a ceremony that would be parallel to baptism but i'm assuming you don't believe in hell and certainly not a god that would torture infants i do not believe in hell or a god that would torture infants i can't even 100 percent say I believe in a God that is a mover in the world, right, that causes things to occur. I can't even entirely say that I believe in God, but I have room for God. So I talk to God. I'm just not sure if that's in my imagination or in reality. But you
1: actively disbelieve in baby torturing God, I would argue.
0: There's a whole spectrum of God
1: possibilities you are unsure of.
0: So I would never do a service that says, I baptize you now in the name of God so that you will not go to hell and be tortured, right? I would; I, Those words can't come out of my mouth. But I can say, um, you know, we dedicate this child in the love of spirit and those kinds of things, right? I would find language I can use that meets her need, that isn't a lie coming out of my mouth. But you would baptize the baby even though you you knew she understood your actions to be preventing it from going to hell. Yes, because I think it is a kind thing to do. Let's just back this up. You know, my story about how I like to have a hard copy of what I said from the pulpit, because people tell me all the time when you said this, and I want to be able to say, I never said that. I never said that. A prime example is people say to me all the time, you know, when you said everything happens for a reason? (laughs) And i i clutch my head in my imagination <laughs> and i say no 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 i did not say that you can believe everything happens for a reason i do not anymore believe everything happens for a reason that feels like did you used to believe to me. that you bet
1: oh wow i
0: didn't know any better like i was raised up that way really yeah well i went to the christian oh, yeah, science yeah, church yeah. as a child i believed in a loving benevolent god and in well-being, so I had a pretty good experience, so I thought everything was in God's hands, and so that makes everything purposeful, right? And then as an adult, and I started to actually look at what I really think and believe, and where's my evidence for that? And You know, we joke that ministers have one sermon and my one sermon is, if you believe it, you will find proof. Oh, well, how does that square with your whole honesty situation? So the next sentence is, be careful what you believe. You can't (laughs) choose what you believe. Sure you can. No, you can't. Sure you can. That's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. If you decided you wanted to believe in the God that sent people to hell, I don't think you would have the option. I don't want to we can't prove this right but if i say to you i want you to believe that the sky is pink you can't believe the sky is pink you don't have the choice even if you did want to even if i said i'm going to shoot everyone you love unless you truly believe the sky is
0: pink you can't i don't know i think i would tell myself a story that on some <laughs> spectrum that is not visible to my eyes okay the sky is pink as a unitarian i was
1: res- <laughs> <I> do <did> just <laughs> fine words however i want and i define pink as blue blah 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 that's some bullshit that doesn't seem dishonest to you at
0: all (laughs) nope no no but really in the hierarchy of what is important here (laughs) what color the sky is so if you said to me something terrible and devastating is going to happen if you don't believe the sky's pink i think i could find a way to believe somewhere somehow the sky's pink also if you have ever been to saskatchewan the sky is frequently pink
1: that's it that's true
0: but yeah, you will just sit there for a minute.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's tangential to the point. I'm just thinking about all the time I spent trying to believe in Jesus because I really want to believe in Jesus. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm
0: big, you're small. <laughs> Matilda.
1: <laughs> So you got into like the kind version of honesty is what you're saying, Miss I'm I right, you're love wrong. the
0: kind version of honesty. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: So, Does it involve singing I'm right, you're I,
0: wrong? I did this service once when I was trying to talk about this book, Honest to God, in the congregation. It was fairly early at my in my time at Westwood, so they didn't know me entirely well. And I was it, making an example of a conversation and I knew I couldn't have... Um, ask someone else to be the other part of the conversation because I was going to ask them to say things that wouldn't come out of their mouth normally. So I I was turning one way and then turning the other way and being the two people in the conversation. And the whole conversation had this whole little story about, you know, and then I was explaining that I was, it's kind of like the story you were telling, you know, like the, I'm in the red coat, the fat one in the red coat, and the whole room gasped, right? (laughs) And it's like, wait, did you not notice that those words came out of the me part of the speech? (laughs) (laughs) I used those words to describe me, and I didn't have any scary bad faces on. And the other person was shocked, and I explained why it wasn't a bad thing. And and I realized that, you know, you can really disrupt somebody's thinking by doing a brave, bold thing in the world. And it didn't Mm -hmm. cost me anything. So I want to just lay out there that I really appreciate where someone does a brave, bold thing when it's not costing them in the same way it would cost somebody else. So when I think about justice in the world, Uh the people who are most likely to suffer the impact of saying the brave, bold thing, it would be really nice if somebody else took that hit.
1: It's hard to do that. I agree. But it is often challenging to know what's the right hit to take on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. I think allyship is really important, but I think that the ideal solution is changing the way power is allocated so that people don't need allies nearly so much because they
0: can say the things themselves. But mm-hmm. I do agree that allyship is useful. We're just now getting big pro athletes, male pro athletes coming mm-hmm. out as, as gay. Mm-hmm. Right. It hasn't been an easy path. It hasn't been common. It's really lovely when a very successful one does it. Yes. Because they have more currency in the league. This
1: is why it's so important to me to be out as polyamorous, right, is because I can take the hit such as it is and other people right. cannot. Right. So, yeah, I've got polyamory to worry about, but I have a million other privileges that make it much easier. It's also why... I talk more about foster care than I used to, which I used to think was like, oh, I'm complaining or bleeding or whatever. And now I've realized, no, people who have a bunch of other privileges are the people who can start to normalize those kinds of
0: things. Right. It's why I talk about fat in a Mm -hmm. non-judgmental kind of way, because there are lots of people with a body the shape or size of mine who don't even know that there's anywhere they can talk about it. Yeah, without being judged for it, right? There's there's such a horrible experience with doctors because people. Start with, well, you know, I I see that you have a terrible pain in your head, but if you lost twenty pounds, maybe that would help. (laughs) It's like not really the presenting thing. Which is what we do with our honesty all the time, right? Someone comes and says, you know, I have a problem, I'm unhappy about something, and we apply our judgment to it and think, Yes, you know, I don't I don't like the sermon you gave last week. So that must be what's causing this problem. I am so bad
1: for when a person is having a problem that I have had, I cannot Change my brain from thinking that the reason they're having the problem is the reason why I had the problem. Right. right. Every person right. who is depressed, I'm like, well, clearly your living situation is You need to leave cured. your marriage. <laughs> like, yeah, but no, uh, I have a biochemical imbalance. I'm like, yeah, you won't need any of those medicines if you leave your marriage, which is patently mm-hmm. false. Many people need medicine. Just to be mm-hmm. super clear, anyone who tells you that you don't need medicine, no matter what, no matter how depressed you are, is someone who does not care if you live or die. To quote Taylor Tomlinson, just want to slide that in there. But in my case, it was a life situation thing. (laughs) right? And so I cannot get that narrative out of my head when I'm trying to talk to people. And it makes me
0: shit at pastoral care, as we have established many times. (laughs) Well, and that's one of the hard things for me, because I have an opinion about everything. Actually, that very same internal processing. That internal processing friend said to me once, do you have an answer for everything? (laughs) And I was puzzled and young and said, well, yeah, I do. I mean, like, is is that bad? I mean, in my family of origin, being intelligent and having thoughts was prize winning. Like, that's what you were supposed to be. What does she mean by do you have an answer for everything as an insult? How was that an insult? Um, I think because I didn't know when to keep my mouth shut. OK, so what she was actually saying is... Could you keep your mouth shut?
1: Sometimes you shouldn't respond to a question with an answer. Ironically, you tell me all the time sometimes when people have questions. What they don't need is for you to say there's an app for that. They need you to say how do you feel.
0: Right. And that's the big lesson of pastoral care is... Your job is just to show up and hold the space so the people can do what it is they are interested or willing in doing. And so somebody might want to talk through their feelings and their distress. Somebody else might want to play cards and just have company. And it's not my job to decide for them or to decide the source of their problem. Well, I, clearly you are having a brain tumor because you spent too much time playing cribbage. And so <laughs> the big trick is to learn to just ask open-ended questions and give people the space to decide how they want to answer it's hard especially when you think you know the answer (laughs) have you noticed that i'm a relentless (laughs) suck-up i have only recently come to understand. is that this. a trick question <laughs> well you better answer it honestly tell me more about what you mean by being a relentless suck up how do you feel about <laughs> the fact
1: that you're a relentless suck up
0: is this the how do you feel question is for me you don't have to ask everybody that question it's me
1: you ask that question do you feel like i'm lying to you when i ask that question no Even though you know that I'm saying it because you told me to say it?
0: Even though I have trained you and it is a routine and you are following a sentence on a sheet of paper? Yeah, that doesn't feel vaguely dishonest at all. No, it feels like you listened to me and you learned something. You might never be inclined, naturally, to say, how do you feel about that? (laughs) Right? You might. Honey, don't take this wrong, but my experience of you in groups is that
1: I don't need to ask you how you feel about that. I can count on you to just tell
0: them. Honey, don't take this the wrong way is definitely the precursor to I am softening this blow. (laughs) And you are so right.
1: I think the key to honesty is right before you say something honest that might be hurtful is to say in a patronizing tone, honey, don't take this the wrong way. I think that is a great And then you
0: should finish it with the bookend of, I was just being honest. You want me to be honest, don't you? (laughs) No, actually, no, not in this moment, no. (gasps) Oh, so sometimes honesty is, see, you're vacillating. Now you're like, Mm -hmm. I'm not vacillating. I'm asking you to censor your own self. Perhaps you have chosen the wrong table. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing that keeps me at the table Mm -hmm. is trust in the other person is believing that they care about my well-being as much as they care about their own well-being. If I feel like you have put your well-being first and foremost, and underneath of that, you care equally for me, I might tolerate a little bit more of your bluntness, although I would be inclined to tell you that that was a little too blunt for my feelings to want to stay present. And you would want to know oh my goodness if that made you stop listening to me that is not productive (laughs) (laughs) i want you to listen to me tell me the way to make you listen to me
1: that is absolutely the marker of when i should leave a table do i think that the people there care more about their own well-being than me i've had a number of situations recently where people have said um but you have to stay and do x y or z because i love you And I have come to understand that there is a kind of love that is like I love my iPhone. My iPhone Mm -hmm. does all of these great things for me. Love the iPhone. I don't care more about the iPhone's well-being than my own. In fact, I only care about the iPhone's well-being when it works as it impacts (laughs) me, right? (laughs) Yes. And I've sort of come to realize that that is a crucial piece of it. And yet the iPhone would still give its life for you. No, oh, the iPhone! Well, I was gonna say the iPhone loves me more than I love it. But I don't know. I think Siri is a relentless suck-up.
0: If you just say to her to give you a compliment, she will. Do you really think you're a relentless suck-up all the time? Don't you think I'm a relentless suck-up? No. Really? No. When I do you see me saying hard truths to people that will offend them? I don't know that all truths have to be hard to be effective. But I have seen you choose to remove yourself from a situation I will leave, but I will never, I will never say this is the true thing of the such and such. I just leave. So to me, sucking up is when we stay and squash ourselves. I used to do that. Now I've discovered I am allowed to leave the table. (laughs) Once we discover we can leave the table, sometimes (laughs) we still stay at the table too long. But once you have that piece of knowledge, it's like it's in there working in the background like creepy little spider feet, you know, it's coming up, it's getting you. And at some point you're going to go, oh, wait, wait. This is one of those times. <laughs> do I want to be at this table? I do not. I should leave this table.
1: Perhaps I think I'm a relentless suck up because I'm comparing myself to John, who mm-hmm. never makes a flattering statement ever. If John pays you a compliment, it is an accident by way of <laughs> something else. he was trying. No, no. <laughs> sometimes he will say a thing that is positive. He would never say to me, you're very smart for the purposes of making me feel good about being smart. Right, He might say to someone, you should have Liz take care of that. She's very smart. But it would be right. in the service of getting a thing done. Right. One of my sisters, I shouldn't say which one, has a husband <laughs> who has a similar <laughs> problem. And she's like, dude, you've got to compliment me more often. You just have to <laughs> figure it out. And so he's like, OK. And then they got into the car and there's this buzzing noise. And she, he turned and looked at her and goes, you're very diligent about remembering to wear your seatbelt and she's like did you set an alarm so that you would compliment me when the alarm went off and he's like yeah like that's what you asked me to do and I did it I don't understand why you are upset and you are diligent she always wears her seatbelt do you know <laughs> should I tell this out loud yes be huh. honest you are just being. if it's if it doesn't go well you can end it with I was just being honest Start with, honey, don't take this the
0: wrong way. People love that. There have been times in my life where I have set an alarm to go off halfway through a meeting and the alarm says, how are you feeling right now? (laughs) And my job when the alarm goes off is to go to the bathroom,
1: right? So it's like it's just buzzing
0: in my pocket. It's not like ringing for everybody to hear. Um, But it is not the case that I always have to pee at exactly halfway through every difficult meeting. So I have my phone in my pocket and it buzzes and I see the message and I go to the bathroom and I ask myself, how are you feeling right now? I would never know until hours later. How I'm feeling? You could just tell in the the moment. The point is to just check in and see, because if I'm all clenched up tight, I need to figure out a way to back off. Right. right to just to undo myself I will not be productive if I am tied up in a ball so I might have to tell myself this topic is not about you your job is here to be helpful and then when you go home you can deal with all of your feelings or it might be that I'm worried that somebody is being mistreated in a meeting over and over again and so I ask myself in that break okay so how is it going are they actually being mistreated and if they are then as the person with more power in the room it's my job to intervene and say wait i wonder if we could just back up a little bit and look at this from another perspective Yep. so for a very long time when things were hard in meetings i would have that alarm go off halfway through (laughs) this podcast will not come out until i do not have (laughs) any more meetings
1: (laughs) when i have meetings I have a little runic language that nobody can understand from when I was a child and I always write keep mouth shut at the top <laughs> of every <Yeah>. meeting. <laughs> this is how this is how my honesty works. Just to try and make sure that I don't dominate the conversation. Until I started timing how much mm-hmm. time I spend and I realized that everyone that says I dominate the conversation is male. Was talking more than you. And I timed it and all of them talked more than me. So they didn't mm. mean you are talking more than me. You, They meant you are talking more than I would like you to talk. Right. Oh, so they were not honest. And they don't <laughs> say it about each other. They just said it about me. Well, they weren't being honest with themselves. I think they do right. think that I talk too much and I think they do think that I talk more than you them. You talk too
0: much for their comfort.
1: I think maybe they're thinking I talk too much relative to how much wisdom I had to contribute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when might you wrote true, but it's true of them too. When you wrote the little runic language on the top of your paper and said, keep your mouth shut, um, did that help? Like, did it actually work? Did you remember to actually read it? Or did it very quickly become something you didn't notice anymore?
1: Mm, I don't know that I remember very well. I think that it gave me too much license not to say things that I was scared Mm. to say anyways. Mm -hmm. And so then all that remained was useless suck up statements. Right, right. So I think it actually made me less effective. It would have been better if I'd written something like leave space for the people who aren't getting a chance to talk because be quiet means kowtow to the other people who have dominant voices right be mindful of how much space you're using which is what i would write now i think
0: would have been a better and more proactive statement Right. right or make space for other people Yeah. Which is even more proactive, right? Because you could shut up and then the the dominant mouths might just take up the space that you weren't speaking in.
1: I would sometimes talk when I was just sick of listening to that guy talk.
0: (laughs) I'd be like, this is it. We're all bored of you. So I'm going to take
1: over for a while. And maybe it would have been better for me to say who hasn't spoken yet.
0: Knowing that lesson about being able to leave the table, like I think that's the big one that impacts Mm. our honesty, maybe more than anything else. Because if you feel like you are required to stay at the table, it is hard to be completely honest.
1: Yeah, for me, being honest and being able to leave the table have been parallel journeys. They go hand in hand. Yeah, because if you're gonna have to stay forever, you have to be very careful
0: what you say. Right? The funny thing is, if you are honest, in a kind fashion, because I am the arbiter of which is the right method, <laughs> you may be able to stay forever. You know, when, when Laurie and I got married, we made this little rule about the only way out is with a tag on your toe. That's so weird. I have so much trouble with that. What I say to John all the time is as soon as I'm not happy, I'm leaving. Same goes for you.
1: That's what love looks like to me. <laughs>
0: so both of us had been in lots of relationships we knew that we loved each other we knew we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together so the only way out with a tag on your toe really is just a silly gruesome way of affirming that we are committing ourselves to doing what it takes to be well together so that we can last for a lifetime and it's a totally different approach to watching for When something starts to turn and seeing it as, oops, this is the time to get out. I see it
1: the total reverse. So for me, the statement, we should both only stay in this relationship for as long as it is good for us. Mm -hmm. That's in response to the idea that you have to stay at the table no matter what. So I don't have to be kind to you because you can't leave because you're committed Mm. and you've made vows. Right. So the idea of if I'm no longer good for you, I want you to leave that's how I demonstrate actual love. That's how he's not a phone, right? Right. I wanted to be the best, be living the best life for him. And that's one of the questions you get as a polyamorous person all the time is, what if one of the people that they date ends up being a better fit? Mm-hmm. And my answer is that I don't think that's possible. I'm so fabulous. That's my true, honest answer. I think we're a really good fit. But also, if there were someone that was a better fit, what kind of spouse would I be to say I don't want you to be the happier person you could be with that person.
0: I mean, I I think what you're saying is beautiful. Let me just pause for a moment. That was beautiful and that you want the best for both of you and your phone. (laughs) The vows for my phone are different. It must stay no matter what. Our perspective on the staying no matter what is that I will do everything I can to make this good for both of us because we are staying in it till the end. Life is not always good. Relationships are sometimes hard when there are signs of this is not fun or happy or easy. If we take off, then we never find out what we're actually made of. As long as we stay kind and compassionate to one another, as long as we treat each other with love and respect, then even when it is hard, it's okay to be together. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're aiming at is this reminder that I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So let's do a really good job of not making this suck. I wouldn't leave quickly
1: with John because I adore him. But to me saying I'm
0: going to stay because of a promise. No, I'm not staying because of a promise. I'm staying because I adore him. Right. My promise is to do everything I can to continue to adore her and to be adorable. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cracked Cup. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for helping out and making these podcasts possible. To become a supporter or to learn more, go to patreon slash Mirth and Dignity. If you're a member of our Facebook group, the Unitarian Universalist Hysterical Society, keep in mind that this month we are donating to support our mods, who do incredibly hard work and have to read all of the comments that we don't want to have to read. If you'd like to support them, links are in the Facebook group. The Cracked Cup is a Mirth and Dignity production written by Liz James and Reverend Ann Barker. And the editing and producing is by yours truly, Anwen Dyko.